Good morning. One of the things that I want to add to what these two amazing young ladies had to say that I really appreciate about both of them is just their patience and willingness to wait on the Lord. I mean, you heard it from Laura, who has had this desire to be on the mission field for so many years, but what spiritual maturity to set some of her desire aside to listen to where the Lord is leading her life and trusting Him more than she's trusting herself. And to see Claire do the same thing. I just can think about when you were with the other agency and it was going down a different path and you were willing to wait when there was a lot of excitement and emotion about that direction. But to see where the Lord has led you now is only confirming that you're exactly where you need to be. So thank you for both setting an example for all of us, myself included, to follow. So... As we get started, I just want to say thanks for hanging with me last week. I know there are a lot of uh, details in our passage, and it was a lot to take in, but I appreciate your willingness to walk through those details together. Um, It was funny, after the service, I uh, was visiting with little Hudson, who's uh, Hud and Lisa's grandson, and and, a sweet little boy, and he looked at me, and he said, I know you. You were talking a long time. And I said, oh, wait, it gets better, trust me. I said, yes, I was, that was me. He looked at me innocently, and he said, it was really boring. (laughs) Let's just say, I hope that wasn't the general opinion, okay? Oh, goodness. Because in the midst of all those historical details really is a very important truth, and that is that our God is the one who is sovereignly in control of all the details of human history. In all of those details, we need to understand, work together to accomplish his redemptive purpose. All throughout the Bible, God made promises of what he said he would do, and he has been faithful to fulfill Every single one of those promises, which means, as we just sang, we can find security in his sovereignty. He will hold us fast, not just now, but eternally, that our security is not in our performance. It's in his promise, and he will hold us fast, so we can have hope in his faithfulness. That's the point I don't want you to miss. So as we continue to work through Daniel, we're learning about God's heart, his promise to the nation of Israel. Remember, one of the things the angel told Daniel at one point, he says, this is a message for your people and your holy city. And even though we are not Jewish by our ethnicity, it should really be very important to us, and here's why. The most important promise Jesus or God ever made came through the nation of Israel, and it should matter to us that there would be a Savior that would be born out of the tribe of Judah, and that he would be in the line of David, and that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, and that he would be a Savior to the world, and that is Jesus Christ. And he has fulfilled that promise. And it should matter to us. So as we look at how God fulfills his promise to Israel, I just want to remind you 
that within that promise to Israel is a promise to you. And all of this happens at his appointed time. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We want to do so humbly. We want to do so with teachable hearts. We want to do so just like we saw from our sweet friends Laura and Claire this morning with hearts that are willing to wait and listen and patiently go where you lead, do what you say to do for the praise and glory of your name. Give us hearts like that this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, we were, began looking at the, the last vision in the book of Daniel, as the angel gives accounts of all these future events, events that would impact the nation of Israel in significant ways, and even in some cases, threaten to eradicate them. But they were caught in the middle of a power struggle. You remember that, between two warring kingdoms. We looked at that map together, didn't we? That southern kingdom of the, the uh, Ptolemies of Egypt, in the northern kingdom, the Seleucids of Syria, and right smack dab in the middle of the two of them is the nation of Israel. And when that tug of war is going on, it's Israel that feels the brunt of their anger. We, we learned about details of, of events that occurred hundreds of years down the road. They were learning, we were learning about battles that would be fought. We were learning about treaties that would be made. We were learning about marriages that would take place between specific people. We were learning about betrayal and murder and all the things that came to play out in history hundreds of years before any of them ever happened. So as we continue looking at together, let's go to the word. If you would, turn to Daniel 11 and let's pick up where we left off last in verse 21. Verse 21, again, a reminder, the angel still describing the details of the vision that Daniel has seen so that he can understand what is yet to come. In verse 21, he picks up and says, in his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overwhelming forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. So here in verse 21, we're going to center on one specific individual. Now, last week we had tons of details about lots of people, didn't we? Well, this week is going to focus on one specific individual, and here in verse 21 we learn that he is a despicable person, and that he was. His name is Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, a man so vile that he foreshadows the coming of the Antichrist. We learn about Antiochus Epiphanes earlier in Daniel, and actually in chapter 8, if you'll remember that. At the end of verse 23, uh, in chapter 8, it says, A king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Here in our passage this morning, in verse 21, it says that the kingship will not be conferred to him. All this is telling us is that Antiochus became a king through betrayal. He cheated his way to the throne. He was a deceiver. 
That's because Antiochus was not a rightful heir to the throne. It was actually his brother who was killed, and his brother's son was the rightful heir. But he ascended the throne, Antiochus, through intrigue. What he did is when he learned of his brother's death, he formed a mercenary army, and he went in to take the throne by force, but when he arrived, they didn't give him any resistance. So he took it in peace. And part of that was because of his deception. He was pretending to secure the throne for his nephew, Demetrius, who was the rightful heir. That's what his claim was. Meanwhile, he continued to build this massive army and crushed any resistance that came against him, including, as we learn in verse 22, the prince of the covenant. Now, in all likelihood, this is talking about a very specific person. We know about this incident in history. He was the high priest during Antiochus' rule, and his name was Onias III. Not only was he the high priest in Jerusalem, he was also the leader of the Oniads. Do you remember that last week? That's that conservative group, the predecessors to the Pharisees. They were the ones who took the religious system so seriously and were so committed to preserving the law and the practice of worship as God had instructed them. Well, Antiochus didn't like Onias because Antiochus wanted to see the Jewish people just conform to the Greek way of life and follow him rejecting their own God. When Onias wouldn't do that, he replaced him with a man named Jason. And Jason would become now the high priest established by Antiochus Epiphanes. We learn later on that Antiochus went and had Onias killed. He murdered him. Look at how it continues in verse 23. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and again up and, and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. Remember, Antiochus is claiming that he's securing the throne for his nephew, but he's a deceiver. And it became very clear early on that he had no intent to relinquish the throne. Instead, he continued to gain power and gain territory as he conquered people who resisted him. And as he did, he took all that bounty for himself. But what's interesting, he's a pretty smart man, even though he was evil and vile. Instead of keeping all the money for himself, he used it for bribery. And he paid off people to support him. And he would give them land if they gave him his, their allegiance to him. And so all the time is not only is he building this massive army, but he's building this people who now give him alliance because he has given something to them to begin with. Look at how it continues in verse 25. He will stir up strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. 
Those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. Now, Antiochus is in secure control of the northern kingdom. And so much so, he's ready to take territory in the southern kingdom. So he makes his way to the king of the south. And this major battle ensues between him and another one in the line of the Ptolemies, as we talked about last week. But remember, Antiochus is a deceiver. That's his role. That's what he does. So somehow, probably through bribery, he convinces some of the Ptolemies' own men to betray him. Verse 26 says, they were men who ate his choice food who destroyed him. So likely, these were high-ranking officials who betrayed their king. They took him hostage and made him a prisoner of war under Antiochus Epiphanes. Look at what happens in verse 27. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. So here's what happens. Ptolemy is taken hostage. He's a prisoner of war under Antiochus Epiphanes. And while he's gone, the people of Egypt elect another king to replace him. Well, this infuriates Antiochus, and it doesn't make Ptolemy very happy either. Because these are his own people. So Antiochus and Ptolemy decide that they would conspire to join their forces and against a common enemy. Verse 27 says that they will speak lies to each other at the same table. In other words, they are both bent on betraying the other one. But it's Antiochus who is the stronger of the two, and he gets the upper hand. He quells the uprising and he makes Ptolemy a puppet king. So he puts him back into a position of authority, but he controls all of his decisions. He's just a puppet king to be used by Antiochus. On his way back to Syria, Antiochus stops in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to say this once, and I'll repeat it again. He hates the Jews. Okay? He doesn't like anything about them. And so what he does on his way back to Jerusalem, he's got this plunder from the war he's just one, but it's not enough. And so he decides arbitrarily to increase the taxes on the Jewish people in that moment. And since they were willing to give him the money that he wanted, he goes to the temple treasury and he robs the temple treasury to pay for the taxes that he had just put on those people. Now, you can imagine the hostility that is building, can't you? between the Jewish people and Antiochus Epiphanes, who does everything he can to just kind of jab them, to take advantage of them. But eventually the dam's going to break, and it's not going to be pretty when it does. So look at verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katine, will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will turn and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. 
before we look at the verses, I wanted to point something out to you. There's a repeated phrase that we've seen already and we'll continue to see it in our passage this morning. We see it in verse 27. It's here in verse 29. It says, at the appointed time. It keeps saying that. At the appointed time. At, at what appointed time? By whom? Well, you'll remember, we're learning about all these details from an angel that was sent by God. And this angel is revealing all these future events as revealed by God. And all of these things are going to take place at the appointed time by God. Each one established to fulfill his predetermined plan at the appointed time. Antiochus didn't get enough the first time. And so he's going to go back to the king of the south and he wants more territory. But this time we learn that it does not turn out as it did before. And here's why. At the same time Antiochus is growing in his strength and power and in his greed, the Roman Empire is also gaining strength much greater than his own. And they have a very vested interest in what happens specifically in Egypt. Because they have a trade agreement and much of their food supply comes from Egypt. And so they're keeping a close eye on what Antiochus is doing in that area. And when he begins to make his move, they're watching. When he gathers his people for war, they're actually wet ready when he arrives. I want you to picture this scene, okay? So imagine Antiochus Epiphanes, this vile man who's a man of war. He worships bloodshed. He enters into this territory that he is planning to conquer, and he faces a man named Popilius, who's a Roman, wearing a toga, carrying a stick. That's all he is. He walks up to Antiochus, doesn't give him a greeting or a handshake, but just hands him a letter from the Roman Senate. Well, Antiochus opens the letter, reads it, and it says, basically, if you do anything to Egypt, the rage of the Roman Empire will come upon you. Well, Antiochus didn't want to have anything to do with this. He said, that's not true. I, I, I demand a, a, a hearing with the Senate. I need to speak to them. So this is what Popilius does. He takes his stick. He draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, you either decide to withdraw immediately, or if you step out of that circle, you have declared war with Rome. It humiliated him. Remember, he's in a toga. <laughs> Carrying a stick is humiliated. And he agrees to comply because he knows what's behind him. You see, the ships from Katim were shipped from Rome in verse 30. They're the ones who were there ready for his answer. Antiochus was forced to abandon his plan in humiliation. And he's a prideful man, right? And so when prideful men are humiliated, what happens? They get enraged. And that's exactly what happened with him. And who better to take out his anger upon than the people he hates the most? which is who? The Jews. So in a similar ultimatum, he returns to Jerusalem and demands 
that they forsake all Jewish religion and practice and worship him alone. Antiochus Epiphanes. It was really his desire, let's be clear, to annihilate any Jewish practice at all. His goal was to take away any signs of worship, any signs of Jewish tradition or practice. His goal was to eradicate any evidence of Jewish people. If they didn't comply, then they would feel his wrath. Let's see what that looks like in verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. I mentioned some of the details about what happens here back in chapter 8, but they bear repeating. The goal of Antiochus, again, was to eradicate any evidence of the Jewish people, their Jewish practice, their Jewish worship of any kind. And he did that by putting a stop to all the sacrifices that took place in the temple. Anyone trying to worship the one true God was immediately killed. They were put to death. And in order to prevent them from using the sanctuary for any kind of a sacrifice, he defiled it. It's what verse 31 calls the abomination of desolation. And what he does is he sets up an altar to Zeus and he sacrifices a pig, an unclean animal, on that altar in the temple. And then he required all the Jews to come before the altar and bow in worship to him. In his rage, he goes even further to take all the sacred scrolls that he can find, whether they're in the temple or whether they're in people's homes, and he takes them into the streets and he burns them. Jews that refused to worship any of the Greek gods were killed. Babies that were born, if circumcised, were killed, along with their mothers. Men were butchered alive. Men or women and children, were sold into slavery. The only ones who survived, the only ones who didn't feel the wrath of Antiochus Epiphanes were those who were willing to forsake the one true God and worship the pagan gods, accepting the Greek culture that he was instituting among them. Verse 33 says that there were some who tried to take a stand, but they were martyred. For their faith. And in, their, in the end, thousands upon thousands were martyred in and around the city of Jerusalem. People who were unwilling to compromise, massacred by the sword, burned to death by flames, taken into captivity and plunder, sold into slavery. And yet all of this led to one of the most celebrated events in Jewish history. Look at verse 34. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. Many will join with them, some in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure 
until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. Again, Antiochus attempted to annihilate the Jews, but this intense persecution served to purify God's people in, in, in revealing those who truly believe. Because even amidst the ki- killing, there were those who were unwilling to compromise. They said, I would rather die whatever death is necessary than worship anyone or anything other than the Creator God. And they stood strong in the midst of that. It's possible that the help being referenced in verse 34 is one such example. Because the army of Antiochus stayed well after Antiochus left. They continued to enforce his rules, force people to worship pagan gods. They were basically captives in their own homes. In one particular situation, they came to an elderly Jewish priest. His name was Mattathias Hasmonean. Okay? Remember that name. The soldiers went up to his home. A crowd had gathered, and they were going to set an example with Mattathias, this priest, this elderly priest. And what they required him to do is to make a sacrifice and present an offering to a pagan idol. But Mattathias refused. When they went to force their way upon him, he took the sword that they carried and ended up killing two of the soldiers. Then he and his five sons ran throughout the city into the city of Jerusalem yelling, to everybody's, so that everybody could hear, let everyone who is zealous for the law and stands for the covenant follow me. And they continued to run. And as they did, there was a small band of men who were willing to go with them, and they ended up gathering together and hiding in the Judean wilderness. These men, these brave men, organized raids upon the city. They would tear down these pagan altars that had been set up all throughout the streets of Jerusalem. They would rescue Jews that were being held as prisoner. They were so effective, they became known as the Maccabees, which the Syrian word means hammer. As you would expect, the Maccabean revolt eventually gained the attention of Antiochus Epiphanes. He thought it was just this small uprising that he could quell, but he just couldn't put it to a stop. So finally, he had had enough. He says, okay, we're going to do this once and for all. He sends his chief military officer with an army, get this, of 60,000 men and 5,000 cavalry. At this time, the Maccabees may may have seven to 10,000 volunteers, maybe, hiding in the Judean wilderness. But miraculously, they soundly defeat the Syrian army. Not only do they defeat the army, they go into Jerusalem and they retake it from its occupation. They rebuild the altar in the temple. They restore and rededicate the worship and practices of the Jewish people in that temple. There is a tradition for the Jews that in this practice, they celebrated it for eight days, but they only had enough oil to light the menorah for one day. But miraculously, God allowed that one day supply of oil 
to last the whole eight-day festival, which is why they call it the Festival of Lights, or you may know it as Hanukkah. As we see in verse 35, it was a refining moment that brought purity among the Jewish people. It refined their faith. It purged the unbelief. It purified those who were willing to make any sacrifice to serve their God alone. But, as we well know, there have been a lot of refining moments for the Jews over the years, hasn't there? And we need to understand that that this is God's work among his people to purify them, to help them understand what it means to trust in him alone. And it will continue, as our passage says, until the end time. Now, next week, we will look at some of those end time details, which I hope those will be fascinating as well. But I want you to appreciate what we have looked at in the first 35 verses of chapter 11. Okay? In the first 35 verses of one chapter, chapter 11, there are 135 distinct prophetic promises. Did you hear that? In 35 verses, there are at least 135 distinct prophetic promises, and every single one of them have been fulfilled. Is that not amazing? 135 of them, and we could point to how each and every one of them have been fulfilled, and each of them at their appointed time. God has fulfilled his promise to protect a remnant in Israel, no matter how bad it may seem, because the most important promise God ever made comes through the nation of Israel. That's why he's protecting them. That's why it matters to us. So with that in mind, I want us to turn to a passage and close with this. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I want us to look at some similar language here in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 begins and says, But when the fullness of time came, or we might say, at the appointed time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you were sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. At the appointed time, God sent forth his son. When it tells us that, it, that he sent forth his son, what that's telling us is that his son preexisted, living eternally in the undivided presence of the Trinity. But he was born of a woman so that he might be revealed as a man, so that in his humanity we could see the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us born under the law so that he might fulfill 
every righteous requirement of the law. And why? So that he could redeem those who live under the curse of the law, which is every single one of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All this was necessary to redeem a people for himself. His perfect obedience uniquely qualified him to make a perfect sacrifice for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At just the right time, Jesus did what all humanity needed him to do. At just the right time, Jesus changed the course of human history, taking those who were slaves of sin and adopting them by faith into the family of God. So if you belong to God through faith in Christ, then you can look at those 135 prophecies and say, of course he did, and a whole lot more. Because one of those promises yet to be fulfilled for us in this room is eternity in his presence. A, a day in which all sin is taken away, all grief and mourning is gone, and we live eternally, joyously in the loving presence of our God and Savior. That is a promise, and it will be fulfilled. There is no greater security than knowing that your eternal destiny is in his hands. Psalm 33, verse 4 says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. All his work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 91 says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a, and a bulwark or a protective wall. This is the assurance that you have when you belong to God. Even amidst all that is happening in our lives today and all the things that are yet to come, we belong to him. And if we belong to him, we are heirs of his great promises made to us. Amen? So if you would, let's stand. I want us to recite the Lord's Prayer together. And as we do, I would ask that you consider the words and their meaning. So let's not get in a hurry. This is important because this is the prayer that our Lord told us to pray. And I hope in light of what we looked at today, it will remind you of some very important truths. So let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. Quick reminder. If you put your faith in Christ, you are one in whom Christ dwells and delights. 
You belong to the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. He's not done yet, and neither are we. So go and carry out the work of God that he's called each and every one of us to as his children. Amen? Have a great day.